0: So hello, welcome to Back Chat. Uh, This week, my guest is a newly elected politician who was recently appointed the deputy leader of the Liberal Democrats, first Liberal MP for St. Albans since 1904, Um, and that is Daisy Cooper. Here now
1: with more news, debate and opinion.
0: Hello, Daisy, how are you doing?
1: I'm very well, thank you. How are you?
0: Yeah I'm okay I'm okay. I mean so growing up then were you always destined to go into campaigning and politics?
1: Yeah. Um, I was probably always destined to go into campaigning um, but I don't think I was necessarily destined to go into part of politics so um, I think I've got campaigning uh, blood in me uh, and it runs in my family so from a very young age I remember hearing about acid rain, you know, which is something that the, you know, the world's now sorted out, but at the time it was the biggest threat to uh, to the to the planet. And, um, you know, I used to have my sort of pro-environment t-shirts on, and I remember collecting conkers and planting them, and a couple of years later trying to flog them to sort of London holiday makers who were up in their second homes in rural Suffolk, you know. Um, and uh, and so I've, I've always had this sort of campaigning spirit in me and, you know, campaigned at school to change school uniform and all this kind of stuff, you know, because uh, some of us couldn't uh, afford the new jumpers. So I've always been the kind of person where I've seen in some kind of injustice, I've been mobilised to do something about it. Um, but I didn't get involved in party politics until my late 20s, um, and it hadn't really occurred to me to get involved in party politics until that age. So, uh, so campaigning, yes, party politics um, was never on the cards until... A bit later on.
0: So, were you successful in the school uniform campaign?
1: <laughs> yes, yes, we were actually. Yeah, I was. Uh, I remember I was in year ten, and they wanted to introduce a new jumper uh, for those people going into year eleven, and um, uh, some students who couldn't afford to buy it just for you know, a single year. So, we we uh, managed to get an exception. Where we said well you know you only have to get the new jumper if you're going to wear it for three years uh, and anybody who's already in year 10 and 11 doesn't have to buy it so they had a phased introduction so we were successful
0: well, congratulations <laughs> that was we... a
1: long time ago <laughs> <laughs>
0: um so you've obviously got um a lot of campaigning experience that you've done outside of the <laughs> school jumper etc what was the thing that actually pushed you to enter party politics then
1: do you know, I remember it so clearly. It was a, a Sunday morning um, and I was sitting on the sofa eating my cereal and I was watching uh, one of these sort of Sunday morning political shows. And it was the Labour government at the time and the interviewer asked the Labour minister what the Labour party was doing to tackle homegrown terrorism. And I remember the answer being about, you know, 40, 42 days um, detention without charge and um, about an increased use of stop and search. And, uh, and I remember just feeling absolutely horrified that a minister of any government, of any political party, would actually say that this was the answer. Um, and like I said, we had done a couple of law degrees and that sense of individual civil liberties and individual rights just felt to be completely trampled over by these new policies. And I felt really quite outraged about it. So there were two things that occurred to me one was i thought well you know if politicians are talking in these terms you know kind of demonizing entire groups of people through the use of stop and search you know where do we end up as a country you know here we are you know 12 years on Um, and the other thing that occurred to me was well if she can be an mp i think i probably can be too so (laughs) i thought i'll have a bash at that so um got my laptop out um had always voted lib dem thought i was probably a lib dem thought i better double check that i was a lib dem did a bit of research and uh, decided that I definitely was a Lib Dem. So I signed up and, uh, and the rest is history. Well, that's my little cat joining us.
0: There's Sorry. your cat. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, what, I mean, there's one thing kind of joining, joining the Lib Dems, um, and there's another thing taking the step, I think, to run for Parliament. I believe you were a councillor as well, weren't you? Is that right? That's
1: right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when I felt joined the party, I, it was really because I, I wanted to become an MP because I'd seen this other MP on TV okay. and thought I could do a better job. So that was kind of the plan. Um, so, you know, I, I joined in around 2008 time, uh, became an approved parliamentary candidate in 2009, um, knew absolutely nothing about campaigning and thought, oh, right, well, you know, um, 2010 general election, I could be an MP in six months' time. Had absolutely no idea that there were things like winnable seats and not winnable seats and marginals. I had no idea about any of that stuff, um, but learned pretty quickly and and decided that I was just going to, you know, I stood in what was regarded as a a seat that we would never have a chance of winning. It was a real kind of, you know, Tory um, stronghold. Uh, But I decided to give it my best shot. We got an 8% swing against the 1% national average for the party. um, And that sort of put me on the radar slightly. So after that I got more and more involved in the kind of central party politics, um, as well as, you know, Uh, you know getting involved in campaigning in various communities as well
0: so your um, success last year was essentially 10 years of of hard work I guess (laughs) 10 years building up to
1: Yeah, I've moved around the country um, because life gets in the way, right? You've got the best laid plans, but, you know, life happens and there are reasons why you have moved to different parts of the country because, you know, your personal life changes or there are work opportunities or whatever it might be. So I had always stayed involved in the Lib Dems and had been uh, involved in the local parties wherever I had been living or or working. Um, And then uh, St Albans came up uh, as an opportunity in uh, 2016, shortly after the referendum. And uh, for personal reasons, I was already looking at moving to sort of somewhere around North London or Hertfordshire. Um, and it was one of those lovely occasions where everything sort of falls into place. You know, there was an opportunity to, to become a candidate in an area that I wanted to move to anyway. And uh, yeah, and I'm you know, really, really happy.
0: The rest is history, as you said. <laughs> um, so kind of going back before, I mean, you kind of touched on it, I guess, with uh, environmental campaigning, etc. I mean, what was your kind of earliest political moment or I guess campaigning moment
1: ah so um there's two different things the first so the moment which wasn't a campaigning moment but the first moment that I remember was being a little girl and seeing the news on tv and seeing another little girl (laughs) staring back at me and being starving and this was during the Ethiopian famine and and I was from being very very confused and very upset that there was another little girl somewhere in the world who was absolutely starving and had flies on her eyes and and I remember it really really struck a chord and that level of injustice you know when you're little you just have no idea why other people are hungry (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense you know um and I remember that being one of the first times that my um I found it quite shocking and upsetting as a little girl and had lots of questions to my mum about you know well why was this happening and why was that little girl hungry and why weren't people giving her food and all those very basic things so that's the first kind of moment that i remember but in terms of actually campaigning um my my mum was a or you know, is to some degree still a, a campaigner and uh, i think she took me on a cnd march the campaign for nuclear disarmament <laughs> she was a real lefty so she took me on a cnd march um, my very early years, and we had little white doves that we had to write messages on about, you know, wanted to grow up in a world without nuclear weapons and all the rest of it. So that's has my earliest political memory.
0: So is your mum, would she vote for you now, or is she, is she too far, <laughs> too far left, do you think?
1: <laughs> no, she, she's a Lib Dem through and through, yeah.
0: So yeah, so you obviously, um, what well, so you worked for Hacked Off for a while. Um, I mean, do you think that becoming an MP is almost an extension of your campaign for press regulation. Do you still think you'll continue that
1: campaign? Uh, I mean, the, the, the two are not completely linked. I mean, um, I worked for Hacked Off and it was a job. It was a job that I cared about immensely um, because when, uh, when I started working there, it felt like this was the kind of campaign that could change Britain you know, um, there are these sort of fundamental concentrations of power that we have in our country. And the press is very clearly one of them. You know, you have these five big news corporations that own pretty much most of the national press and about 80% of the local press as well. And they can, you know, to a large degree say and do what they like with impunity. And we saw, I know a lot of people had seen Uh, the absolute travesty uh, around the hacking of Millie Dowler's phone but there were thousands and thousands and thousands of other you know victims of press abuse and press intrusion Um, and and so it really genuinely felt like it was an amazing campaign that had the opportunity had an opportunity to to change Britain as I say Um, and the campaign group is still going Um, obviously uh, there's a very limited amount of progress that can be made whilst you have a conservative majority of this size but that's not going to last forever so there will be a time when I think hacked off and other campaigns will will resurface you know and I think that will be a very really good day um, I mean becoming an MP was something that I wanted to do before I'd even got before I joined the hacked off campaign and there were lots of reasons for that so you know, before I joined hacked off I'd worked in international affairs for 10 years um, you know I'd worked on uh, diversity initiatives and gender equality um, and uh, you know other other issues so becoming an MP was really about um standing up for all sorts of issues and for the broader set of lived Dem values um, and working for is obviously is part of that uh, but I'd say that the MP bit came first not the other way around.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah small piece in the puzzle. <laughs> um, so I'm uh, just moving on for some, something that I actually find really interesting which is not really to do with policy or anything but i read an article just after you first got elected actually about the archaic nature of parliament i think you called it in the article that um, you're referring to the the coat hangers for the swords yeah. i mean what what is the weirdest practice do you think in parliament obviously since then i guess you you must have experienced some more some more of that
1: oh yeah i mean there, there's loads and it's really hard to pinpoint one because that they're, they're all so peculiar um but you know uh I mean, bobbing is such a peculiar thing to do you know bobbing is where you have to sort of physically stand up and down to get the attention of the speaker so that you can uh, so that you can ask a question now you know you can stand up and down like 9 10 11 times to try and get the attention of the speaker but still never get called um, and i mean a it's a weird thing to do anyway Uh, because you could just put your hands up or as we're doing now with the hybrid parliament where it's part virtual and part physical you just apply the day before and the list is printed and so you know where you are on the list right it makes sense so I mean not only is it archaic and it looks weird to the public and if it looks weird and it feels weird then actually the public are going to feel more removed from parliament um but for me um bobbing has uh is is a problem for another reason which is that I have a hidden disability and, um, you know, there is no clear route in Parliament for requesting reasonable adjustments. Now, reasonable adjustments have been made for various MPs, but there's not a clear policy on it. Um, and I think that if you could scrap bobbing altogether, it would make Parliament more inclusive for all MPs. Um, so that's something that I'm uh, I'm quite keen to see.
0: So do you think um, the pandemic is kind of dragging Parliament gradually into um, to the 21st century?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the impact of the pandemic on Parliament has been mixed, right? So there's been some good things and some bad things. So I'm not going to say it's all going in one direction. I mean, the the, the, the good side of it is that you do have to be more planned and therefore you can use your time more efficiently and you know whether you're going to get called in a debate or not. Um, and, uh, you know, so that it's, in some ways it makes it more sort of professional and more organised. On the other hand it does remove some of the spontaneity of the debate that you would get in the chamber where somebody would be speaking and somebody wants to question something that they've said so they'll sort of you know either put their hand up or they'll kind of intervene and what have you so so some of the spontaneity has been lost in parliament but um you know i think if parliament wanted to try and recapture some of that it could do so by um having some more technological innovations
0: well fingers crossed hopefully <laughs> um so kind of focus on the Lib Dems specifically then I um so I read a poll this week um which had the Lib Dems below the Greens I mean I know there's a you can find a poll that supports anything (laughs) to be honest so I know it's probably not the most accurate I mean but does does that concern you and where does the party go from here do you think?
1: Sure I mean let's be honest we are um Liberal Democrats always get more coverage and more profile and higher polling in the run-up to a general election because that's when we get more airtime, right? We're guaranteed under broadcasting rules to get more airtime and that's then reflected in in the kind of the public opinion that we get in the run-up to those elections. Um, so because we are now, you know, not quite a year after a general election, there's no, you know, it's it's sort of normal, as it were, for us to drop down in the polls and to drop down in terms of, you know, public coverage and it's disappointing, but, you know, it's not unusual. Um, that said, I think Ed Davey, as our new leader, has been pretty upfront about saying, you know we need to wake up and smell the coffee. We've had three disappointing general elections. We've got a huge mountain to climb to start reconnecting with voters to listening what they really want us to talk about um, as a try and win back their their, their trust and their engagement uh, in what we stand for. So we've got a big job ahead of us, and we know that. Um, and I think, you know, Ed has been talking about his listening tour and how he's, you know, spending time meeting different different kinds of people from different backgrounds and walks of life all around the country. Um, and as deputy leader, one of the things I'm very keen to do is to try and help build up our sort of volunteer ground force in terms of capacity and skills, and to do what we did uh, in St Albans and replicate that in other parts of the country.
0: A good answer, I guess. Um, you you were first elected last December, and you already. Deputy, deputy leader I mean how has that transition been it's very sort of rapid I guess I mean I know you've been a campaigner for forever basically but it sounds a bit but how is that transition
1: yeah well we're a small party of 11 and we we work as a team um, and one of the uh, one of the things I hope to, to bring to the group is my sort of experience of being a professional campaigning before having gone into politics um, and I've very much you know made the case to my party colleagues that um, that's a skill that we needed the top team. So there's no doubt that it's been a huge leap forward in terms of getting the education brief and deputy leader. Um, but I'm chomping at the bit to get started.
0: Yeah, it's. it's um, you seem very. Um...
1: I'm going to pause you there because my cat's crying. I'm going to let her out. The, I let her out the room. Hang on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Do it. I think. Um, sitting quietly for hours and now making a yeah, dealt with.
0: I'll leave that in. That was quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Mean, um, so, this may be an obvious question, I guess. Um, I mean, so do you have your eyes set on the leadership position in, in the future? Do you
1: Anything know what? Future, I've, I've literally just been elected as deputy leader by my <laughs> colleague, and we've got a huge mountain to climb over the next few years, and that's the only thing in my focus. Um, I mean, t- to be really honest, it's a huge honour to be deputy leader. And, um, you know, there may or may not become a, you know, an opportunity obviously at some point, at some point in the future, you know, everyone wants to stand down and there'll be an opportunity there. But it's far too early to say, you know, I think people, people think that uh, MPs are power hungry and they want to be top of the tree. Um, I've always just thought that you should only really go for a position when you know what you want to do with it. Um, and I ruled myself out of the leadership earlier this year because I'm not yet in that space and the timing didn't feel right. Um, but I feel as though I do know what I want to do with the deputy leader role. And I think I know how I can help. So my focus is on that for now. Uh, if at a future point in time, there was a vacancy and it felt right, then you know I'm not going to rule it out now. But I mean, that's a long way off. You know Ed has just been elected as leader. I'm mm. 100% behind him. I've got a job to do as deputy and as education spokesperson. And that's just any other future question is just not on my radar at all.
0: Very focused by sound, but so um, mm-hmm. during the leadership election, especially um, and more generally, there's a lot been a lot of talk about um, sort of cross party collaboration, especially with Labour um, and the Greens. I mean, how much cross party collaboration is, is going on at the moment? <laughs> I mean, I guess all opposition parties are kind of fighting against or fighting against the government for certain things, like you're fighting for the, the Keep the Lights On campaign, etc. Yeah, I mean, how much of that is, is going on?
1: I mean, there is a lot of cross-party working in Parliament. Uh, the public don't see it, but it does exist, and there's a lot there's a lot of it. Obviously, this Parliament's very different from the last one. So in the last Parliament, you know, the Conservatives, um, you know, uh, had a tiny, wafer-thin uh, sort of majority, you know, and had, had done a deal with DUP, and there were lots of Conservatives, and the, the whole the, the framing of politics at the time between sort of those who were... Remainers and those who were Brexiters, you know, cut across party divides. So I think the cross-party working that we saw in the last parliament was very different from the kind of cross-party working you see in this parliament. Um, uh, And needless to say as well that a lot of the sort of one nation conservatives who we might have worked with in the last parliament, um, you know, they've either resigned, uh, been defeated, or have been promoted into the House of Lords. You know, so there's not very many of them left, quite frankly. So the cross-party working tends to happen on the opposition benches in opposition to this very right-wing Tory government. So yeah, it does happen, um, and uh, you know, it needs to happen, uh, I think, um, to, to make Parliament work.
0: Mm, and realistically, the Lib Dems, I think you're second in 80 seats, is it, to the, the Tories? So it's kind of you're trying to appeal to those one-nation conservatives, I guess, they will come over. Um.
1: Well, I mean, what we, did, what we did in St Albans was you, you have to build a very broad church around a set of values you know, um, and we had we won over a lot of former Labour voters and a, a lot of um, former Tory voters, and we won over some of them because um, over a period of time we managed to demonstrate that actually we shared their values and they shared ours, and uh, so they were sort of genuinely won over and now consider themselves to be liberals or liberal democrats. Um, but then obviously in every single seat because of first past the post there are lots of people who vote because they want to vote tactically, um, and uh, we have to make sure that we we run both messages basically.
0: So on, as you mentioned, first of all, I suppose, I mean, I spoke to Caroline Voden um, quite recently, and she, she is um, obviously a massive ag- advocate for, for proportional represent- representation, um, For well, for many reasons. <laughs> um, I mean, is that, are you the same? Would you campaign to change the um, electoral system, or is that kind of lower down on the parties, list of parties? I mean,
1: I, you'd be hard pushed to find a Liberal Democrat who doesn't want to see proportional representation, right? I mean, it's it's been party policy for donkey's years. Um, and so, you know, obviously we, we support it and it's part of party policy, but we're not going to achieve it during this government. So it's not, a, I mean, it's just not a priority. Um, it's the kind of thing where, you know, it could be achieved in some kind of, you know, future deal or in some future point in time it's something that we believe in but we it's not the kind of thing we're going to persuade the conservatives to get on board with. Right now, you know, we're expecting some announcements later today um, about uh, new restrictions, people are worried about whether they can see their loved ones at Christmas. People are worried about whether or not they're going to be able to keep their jobs, whether their livelihoods and businesses are going to collapse. I mean, these are kind of bread and butter issues, you know, jobs and money in your pocket and seeing your family and getting a test and trace system. These are the things that people are talking about. These are the things that my constituents are writing to me about. And as a party, you know, it would be utterly tone deaf if we started Mm. talking about PR over the next few weeks and months. You know, we are talking about bread and butter issues that matter to ordinary folk.
0: Uh, I've got one more question. So we, we were talking about uh, the kind of division in the last parliament between the Leavers and the Remainers. I mean, during the during coronavirus, we've seen a little bit of collective action, people coming together, I guess. I mean, do you think that it's kind of healed some of the divisions caused by Brexit or is there still a long, long, long way to go for that, do you think?
1: Um, I mean, I, I think it's too early to tell, quite frankly, because, you know, we are still uh in a transition period and um i mean covid has created a a sense of community in a very local local localized way um but i think the really big divisions which pointed to a sort of broader set of difference in values is still playing out so there are still those who want us to sort of retreat from the world and those of us you know uh you know some people who have very fundamentally different values to us and those those divides I think are quite deep and to think that we've over, we could overcome them in a matter of months you know when we haven't even left the transition period yet um I think would be a little bit premature so whilst you know there has been more say as you say more community atmosphere and um, that's very much a sort of um you know buying each other food, but I don't know if people have identified themselves as being a Remain or a Brexit voter, you know, in that process. I don't think it's brought people together in that in that kind of way. But um, of course, you know, I, of course I celebrate community spirit, but I think we've got a long way to go um, as a country to try and start healing some of the very long-standing wounds which were exposed um, during that whole EU debate.
0: Well, fingers crossed. Anyway. Thank you very much for watching. That was a, a a good chat, I thought. Uh, Daisy seemed to me um, pretty inspiring and obviously very optimistic about the future of the Lib Dems. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, um, you can subscribe. In a couple of weeks, we've got Dr. Martin Farr, who's talking to me and uh, my good friend Will is back about Brexit, the UK's relationship to the US um, and many other things in one of the last episodes before, before the end of this series. So um, yeah, I'll uh, see you then. Here now with more news, debate, and opinion.